Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Today we are so excited to speak with Dr. Abhishek Mangeshikar who is an expert excision surgeon, and he also advocates and spreads awareness of correct information of endometriosis. He's the founder and director of the Indian Center for Endometriosis, which is a knowledge bank about endometriosis, correcting myths with endometriosis facts, discussing treatment options and procedures, and providing ample research data and key developments in the field of endometriosis in India and worldwide. Dr. Mageshikar trained extensively in laparoscopy in one of the most advanced centers for gynecologic endoscopy. He then worked in private practice for a year alongside his father, after which he went on to a two-year fellowship in minimally invasive gynecology from Chang'eng Memorial Hospital in Taiwan. He's performed almost 2,000 surgeries, and he's been running his multidisciplinary endometriosis practice for over seven years. His special interests include bowel endometriosis, imaging and working with Indian-German scientists to train artificial intelligence to read imaging, like wow, (laughs) and neuropelviology related to endometriosis. And not only that, in addition to being an excision surgeon, he also teaches laparoscopic gynecology, and he's held various esteemed positions on different gynecological boards. Dr. Mageshikar believes that it's important that Indian people are aware of endometriosis and its symptoms. Some of the key challenges in India are lack of awareness, lack of prompt diagnosis, and incorrect method of treatment of endometriosis. And through the Indian Center of Endometriosis, Dr. Mageshikar aims to not only spread knowledge about the disease, but also to bring our community together to try to create a revolution in the field of endometriosis for a quick diagnosis and expert treatment of the disease. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Mangesh Shikhar to the episode today. Hi, Dr. Mangesh Shikhar. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We are so happy to have you here. To start, I would love if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and why you're here. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm Dr. Abhishek Mangeshika. I'm a gynecological surgeon from Bombay, which is a very large city in India. And um, I specialize exclusively in the treatment of endometriosis and uh, pelvic pain. I'm also a neuropelviologist, so I do also deal with chronic pain and nerve disorders relating to the pelvis. I am fellowship trained for two years, 
primarily in gynecology and endometriosis. And upon returning to India after my fellowship, I specialized exclusively in endometriosis. And that's how I began my career and developed a multidisciplinary center to deal with endometriosis. So you said that you have a multidisciplinary center for endometriosis. So would you tell us now, we know that you use excision surgery. So could you tell us how did you learn about excision and do you exclusively do excision on endometriosis patients at your center? I do lead a multidisciplinary team. And uh, for those who are unaware, a multidisciplinary team for endometriosis came about with the concept from gynae oncology when we used to look at outcomes for ovarian cancers. They saw that the outcomes of surgery and treatments greatly improved when there was a multidisciplinary team dealing with the disease. Similarly, for endometriosis, when there's multiple specialties involved and the team is wholly focused on endometriosis, the diagnostics, the outcomes of surgery, and patient quality of life regarding pain as well as fertility are also greatly improved. So I, like I said, I, I was fellowship trained mainly in gynae oncology, and then I started moving towards endometriosis because um, of a story where I, I finished and I came back to India with the intention of becoming a gynecological oncologist. And when I started my practice, many patients would be told that minimally invasive surgery was too dangerous for malignancies. And um, a lot of patients I started seeing initially were very poorly managed endometriosis cases. So I started to treat more of those. And then I realized what kind of a disaster we are in, in India and globally with the disease, with their level of care is not anywhere close to where it should be. And that kind of made my decision to move towards treating this disease. And then I had to research and find out about why we were not making the diagnosis well enough and what are the best treatments. And in that journey, I discovered excision, which is the surgical technique to go outside the limits of the disease and remove it completely from its roots. And that's when you have the lowest recurrence rates and the best outcomes. So yes, I practice exclusively excision surgery through ablation in the sense of if it was absolutely going to vaporize disease is very difficult to achieve. It's not a standardized technique. What is described by most gynecologists as ablation is just using a bipolar coagulation to burn the lesions, which is not truly causing the removal of the disease. There are certain studies where they have used ablation using a plasma jet or a kind of laser to completely vaporize tissue, but we don't have great data on that. So in my practice, as of right now, it's exclusively excision. Also, India is a little limited in resources, so we don't have the CO2 lasers or the plasma jet lasers available to even compare and contrast and put out that data. So right now with what we have available, it's exclusively excision. So with regards to ablation, there's no visual endpoint of the disease. You don't know when the disease is completely gone, especially if you're using bipolar 
or monopolar coagulation. And secondly, there is no histopathological specimen available for that. Ablation can only be used for superficial endometriosis in, in its use, what it's used for by general gynecologists. And these general gynecologists never treat the disease, which is deep endometriosis, the bowel endometriosis. It's impossible to treat deep endometriosis via ablation. Some of these nodules are as hard or the size of a walnut. And if you actually were to go and try and vaporize that using whatever you use, a laser or a plasma jet, it would take the good part of 12 hours to actually vaporize that tissue. It's impossible to do via ablation. So ablation as a practice doesn't make sense for the deep endometriosis or the most symptomatic kind of endometriosis and therefore shouldn't even be used for superficial endometriosis because you don't know whether it's superficial or deep until you actually start dissecting in normal tissue and going towards the disease. You mean you don't want a hole in your bowel from ablating it? (laughs) Yeah, and I think too, some big problems that, you know, we are aware of with ablation is that it can, first of all, it has a high failure rate and, you know, pain and symptoms are very likely to recur soon after because in many cases, endometriosis persists and isn't fully removed. And something else is that it, in some patients, can lead to more pain and more symptoms afterwards due to the inflammation and scar tissues. So thank you for explaining about the differences between ablation and excision. And, you know, I'm really glad that we have you doing excision. I know we need more excision surgeons, so we're happy to hear that you do excision and you're so knowledgeable on it. So as an excision surgeon, how many cases of excision do you do per year? So in my practice, it's a single surgeon practice. So all the surgeries are done by me, or I rather, I am involved in all of the surgeries as the primary surgeon. The number we did last year till December, we've done 170 cases from January 2022 to the start of December. I have another 15 cases scheduled this month. So we look at, on an average, generally between 150 to 200 cases a year. Yeah, and I think that's a great example of a high-volume surgeon. So, you know, you're seeing endometriosis cases, you're exclusively doing excision, and you're a really great example of that high-volume practitioner getting those skills, having those skills to excise the complex cases of endometriosis versus, you know, doctors, you know, who are not doing so many surgeries per year or who are treating general gynecology or cancer or obstetrics and, you know, not able to get that high caseload and therefore not able to get those skills and keep practicing those skills, especially for the complex cases. So just to add a little more to the volume of work, because we're a big referral center for endometriosis, Most of my work is not peritoneal disease. It's not superficial endometriosis. Most of my work is deep endometriosis. I have a special interest in bowel endometriosis primarily and endometriosis of the parametrium, which affects the sacral nerves. So a lot of my volume is that work. I mean, like you mentioned, you know, it's about doing this regularly. It's not somebody who is dabbling in endometriosis once in a while. An average laparoscopic gynecologist, even though they may be very experienced or high-volume gynecologists, 
we'll do maybe one or two bowel cases in a year. We do two a week. So it is uh, truly about the center focusing on that particular kind of disease and that, that caseload. Tell us a little bit about your team that you have in place to do excision. I started the Indian Center for Endometriosis. The team part of it, the multidisciplinary team, is two gynecological surgeons. That's me and my father. And we have a specialist anesthesiologist who is also trained for these long surgeries. They are long surgeries. And also for advanced cases in patients with thoracic disease. So they need to be able to collapse a lung so we have space to operate for those kind of cases. And also for colorectal surgery, I have a dear colleague who is young and he is very well trained, fellowship trained again, and very good at experimenting with newer procedures that we're coming out with to reduce the morbidity and the complication rates associated with colorectal surgery. Also have a urologist who helps me with not just the surgical part of it, but the post-operative care for a lot of patients with parametrial disease, there's a lot of neurogenic bladder dysfunction that can occur post-operatively, although it's transient. It is something that requires very close monitoring and patient care in terms of medication and post-operative follow-up. We also have work with um, pain specialists, physiotherapists, nutrition, fertility doctors to assist patients so desirous of fertility and in case they need assisted reproductive techniques. And also a counselor for you know mental health. Wow, that's incredible. And with a lot of surgeons, you do hear that they work with the multidisciplinary team in terms of surgery. But since you are at Endometriosis Center, it's really nice to hear that you have those other aspects like pelvic floor therapy, mental health, the nutrition. So it's just, you know, I think a lot of times when sometimes when patients have excision, like I know in my own case, it was just with an excision surgeon and he did a good job, you know, and I definitely saw huge relief from the surgery, but there really was no, it wasn't a center and there really was no apart from my post-op appointment, like there was no post-excision care. And then I was kind of left floundering, like, ah, where do I go from here? So it's really nice when we can see all of that care together, because I think your center and yourself as a surgeon, you are a really good example of what endometriosis care should look like. You know, we have an experienced, highly skilled, high volume surgeon, that's yourself, with your team, uh, a multidisciplinary surgery team, and then a multidisciplinary holistic care team. And I think I know that more surgeons are training for excision, but I do hope that in the future, more centers like yourself will be popping up places where endometriosis patients can go and can get the care that they need and can be supported holistically in their endometriosis journey. So just really want to thank you for all that you're doing and, you know, for caring so much about the people in our community. Do you collect data at your center and do you track your recurrence rates in any way? Data collection is something that's very important. I think every center needs to do that because that's the only way you can understand if what you're doing is the right thing. 
So yes, I do try to track it. Unfortunately, I've been doing it myself, so it is quite laborious. And I have kind of standardized it now that after each and every case, I will go and sit down at the laptop and make all my entries so it's still fresh in my head. You need a lot of discipline to achieve this because after the case, you can go and sit and have a coffee, which is what most surgeons will do. But I have to spend the first 20 minutes to half an hour sitting and putting down all the data, what we've entered in the case. And yes, I use the same data to track outcomes of surgery, complications, also what my post-op follow-up plan is going to be for this particular patient, and a recurrence rate as well. So, and that the follow-up is very important after excision surgery. So we look at recurrence rates. Most of my recurrences are usually for adenomyosis, either if there's adenomyosis, which progresses later on, or if I've done a uterine sparing surgery that is removing a focal adenomyoma, and then that has a very high recurrence rate because you're never complete with the excision of the adenomyoma. There's always some disease left behind. So those recurrence rates, I would put in about 30 to 40% for adenomyomectomies. Then for my bowel endometriosis cases, the numbers are really good. When we do a complete resection, which is either a discoid resection, which is a full thickness excision of the anterior wall, or the traditional resection, the segmental resection, where you remove a portion of the bowel just above and below the disease. Those recurrence rates are less than 1%. The shaving, on the other hand, has a slightly higher recurrence rate, which is about 5%. This is purely because there is no visual endpoint to shaving. Many surgeons swear by shaving, but there is truly no standardization of the technique. And two is there is no visual endpoint, as I said. So even though one may think they are completely clear of disease, there may still be disease fibrosis lying under what you've excised, and those have higher recurrence rates. So the bowel endometriosis cases I've had to reoperate, a few have been cases that have been shaved before. Ovarian cysts, on the other hand, have a slightly higher recurrence rate of about 10 to 15% in my series. Usually when you do a cystectomy, which is to remove the cyst from the ovary, there's always a chance that some part of the cyst is left behind on the hilum, which is where major ovarian blood supply lies. And if you're doing this for fertility, you have to be very careful around that area. And secondly is there can always be a tiny cyst hiding in the normal ovary. So it's, it's not a good idea to go and dig around the normal ovary in the hope of finding a tiny cyst. So when you excise the big cyst, that tiny cyst can potentially grow in the future. So that is why there are slightly higher recurrence rates with ovarian cysts. Yeah, and I think we know that with endometriomas in general, they can be very tricky in terms of the recurrence rate. And even in the hands of the best surgeon, they have the highest recurrence rate of the different forms, superficial or deep infiltrating endometriosis and endometriomas are three forms of endometriosis and endometriomas have the highest recurrence rate of those three. So when you were talking about shaving and you were talking about how there's no surgical endpoint, it made me think about doing excision in general. And how do you know how deep to go or how wide to go with excising a lesion? 
a major part of my diagnosis, and I'm going to talk about this very specific to bowel endometriosis. A major part of my diagnosis happens with imaging. And what is important to understand is for bowel endometriosis, I do my own imaging. So as in, I do my own ultrasounds. I don't rely on anybody else for that. And I read the MRIs myself. So it doesn't matter which part of the world the patient is coming to me from, as long as they have an MRI film, which they can send to me and I can review it, I can make the diagnosis. So I know how deep the nodule is into the bowel and I know how much circumference of the bowel is occluded. I know pretty much almost what procedure I'm going to have to perform probably before I meet the patient for the first time face-to-face or even go into the OR. But of course, we know that I want to add a note that imaging is not the be-all and end-all of the diagnostic process. But I'm talking about this very specific to bowel endometriosis. This is just my practice. But if you were to do it the old school way, where it was, you can palpate the nodule, well, via laparoscopy, you can't do it with robotics. Well, they say there is a visual palpation, but the one you get with laparoscopy specific to bowel endometriosis is you can tell if there's a nodule there by squeezing along the length of the affected bowel. So that's one way to tell during surgery if you're not able to do the imaging accurately. But that even that can have, have a false impression, especially if you've shaved off the nodule at the top. So basically for what my criteria is for whether I'm going to shave or whether I'm going to do a full thickness excision. So shaving is for nodules that are not entirely into the muscularis. So if there is normal muscularis below the nodule, those are good candidates for shaving. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you shave completely, you are still going to leave some fibrosis behind. It doesn't matter if you're the best surgeon in the world, you will still leave some fibrosis behind. So patients should be explained that there is a slightly higher rate of recurrence associated with a shaving technique. Of course, it has the lowest risk of complications, lowest risk of any functional outcomes, and the lowest morbidity. The other procedures such as a disc excision, which is an anterior wall full thickness excision, which is either done, so I use a circular stapler for that. There are surgeons in the US who do it just by cold cutting with the laparoscopic scissors or robotically, and then they stitch it by hand. It's probably safer to use a circular stapler to do that procedure, and the outcomes are much better. It's also quicker lower morbidity uh, because the bowel is not opened into the pelvis. So those are for deeper nodules involving the muscularis. Those must be singular nodules, traditionally no more than three to four centimeters in length. But now we've started expanding that a little bit by doing two disc excisions for a larger nodule of five centimeters or so. And in some cases, we've done two disc excisions for two nodules that were separate and a good distance apart rather than doing a very long length of a resection. So we saved the patient from a big resection in those cases. Segmental resections are restricted to very large multiple nodules close to each other or subocclusive bowel disease where there is a big nodule which is really causing a narrowing of the lumen of the bowel or almost stenosis of the bowel. 
So it's impossible to pass a circular stapler through that kind of disease. And or nodules that are more than one third the circumference of the bowel. So those are the cases which we reserve the segmental resection for. I always find it really interesting when I interview excision surgeons who, you know, really utilize imaging to their advantage. You know, when I think about you talking about excision surgery and how you use imaging to plan your surgery, right? And that's a really important part of the planning. And you read the scans yourself and you take a look so that you know going in and you're prepared, right? So that I think in this way, the patient can have the best possible surgical outcome because you're not surprised and you know where the endometriosis is and you know what you have to remove and you have these skills to remove it. You know, I think this is really good examples again, and this is why I really wanted you to come on the show and thank you for being here, is that I think you are just a really good example of what excision surgery does look like in some centers with some surgeons and what it should look like, you know, and I think there are different surgeons, different surgeons who, you know, are operating at at different levels with different knowledge, with different abilities, but I think you're a great example And we know that excision surgery is operator dependent. And I think this is something that's really important is that not all excision surgery is equal among us. Not all excision surgery is done with surgeons who have the same skills. You know, it's just exciting to hear you talk about excision and just how much planning goes into it and then how much you're actually able to, you know, fully excise which is the goal of excision surgery. We don't want to go in there and then some of our endometriosis is left behind, potentially causing us problems, continuing pain, or needing another surgery in the future from a different surgeon. So, you know, in order to have complete excision, which is the goal, you have to know what to excise, right? So how do you know what to excise in terms of endometriosis? How do you know what is endometriosis and what's not? That's a great question. So when we, obviously, when everyone starts out, or what you're taught in med school is that the the bluish, blackish lesions in the pelvis on the peritoneum, nobody ever spoke about bowel endometriosis. And you all you heard about were chocolate cysts of the ovary. So first, let's talk about each entity. So for superficial endometriosis, there are many different appearances in terms of color, in terms of texture, in terms of scar tissue, in terms of uh, fibrosis and inflammatory, so neovascularization, new blood vessels forming in the peritoneum. So that's early inflammatory disease. For there, it's usually about just excising the peritoneum. It's fairly easy to do and doesn't take too much time. The ovarian cysts, I think most people know how to do a cystectomy. There's no great skills to it. Of course, the skill comes down to how much of the cyst you remove and how much of the actual healthy ovary you remove. So to be able to identify those tissue planes and to minimize the use of electrocoagulation on the ovary is really going to make a difference on fertility outcomes and ovarian reserves for that patient. For deep endometriosis, that's usually the most difficult one. And uh, you clearly very correctly mentioned that there is excision surgery and there's excision surgery. So deep endometriosis is the most challenging one in terms of making the diagnosis accurately. And probably 
equally difficult is to remove the disease completely. So when you talk about bowel endometriosis, if you're doing a full thickness resection, you're very likely complete. There's a very interesting paper that also looked at microscopic disease on a big length of uh, a segmental resection, which was found up to four centimeters away from the macroscopic nodule. But the outcome was that they found that microscopic disease, even if left behind, may not necessarily grow or create a problem. So we should not be treating this like cancer and doing ultra long resections. We should just be going above and below the primary nodule, which can be felt and can be measured at imaging. And you can feel it at laparoscopy or also visually if you're using a non-laparoscopic approach. So one should understand the limits of the nodule and be able to excise that. That's your endpoint there. When you're talking about deep endometriosis in the parametrium or in the bladder or anywhere else, even a deep endometriosis nodule in the peritoneum, one would start the excision from a normal area and then dissect until you reach the disease and then move lateral to the disease until you reach normal tissue, which is usually fat or some kind of structure that passes underneath. You should be able to conserve that structure because it's either usually going to be the ureter or a nerve or a big blood vessel. So it's very important to be able to identify your anatomy from normal tissue and then dive down deeper into disease tissue where everything is sucked into the disease, which acts like a pathological black hole. It keeps pulling things towards it. And you get nerve entrapments there. You get vascular entrapments there. So if you, if you start directly into the disease and you cut the blood vessel, it's going to retract and that patient is going to bleed out. So it's very important to isolate the blood vessel higher up in case you have bleeding down at the level of the nodule so you can control bleeding higher up on the vessel. I'm also going to talk a little bit about nerve sparing because this is something very interesting. And I think it's paraded about a lot as how people try to differentiate themselves as surgeons. So as a trained oncological surgeon, nerve sparing is very important when you do surgery. And yes, nerve sparing in oncology was mainly about preserving the hypogastric nerves. In endometriosis, you're very unlikely to cut the hypogastric nerve because we don't do the same kind of resections as oncology. So we keep the blood vessels of the bowel intact. We keep the lymphatic and the fatty tissue off the specimen. So it's only the bowel that's removed. So there's no question of damaging nerves during that procedure. In the case of lateral nodules, so invading into the pelvic side wall, we have nerves. We have So nerve sparing is a very ambiguous term. There are nerves that are as thick as my thumb, and there are nerves that are as fine as my hair. So, of course, the sciatic nerve is not, not very unlikely to be cut. Similarly, the hypergastric nerve is very well visualized, so you're not going to cut it unless it's actually entrapped within the disease. Now, a nerve that is stuck inside the disease is impossible to be nerve-sparing on that nerve. So it's literally like trying to separate that strand of hair from a block of concrete. It's not possible to do. Surgeons can parade about being nerve sparing. Yes, if your, if your nerve is not involved in the disease, you're nerve sparing. But if the nerve is gone in the disease, there is no way to leave the nerve 
behind without leaving disease behind on it. So you either cut through the disease or you cut through the nerve. I will talk to patients that when we have disease invading the nerves, it's going to be one-sided and these nerves are bilateral. So the other side usually takes up the neurological function. I think if you have a huge nodule that is bilateral in its infiltration, then one would have to be very prudent with doing that complete resection and excision. In that very rare case, it may be wise to just excise the affected side. So if the patient has symptoms mainly on the right side, then one would be very radical on the right side and a little more conservative on the left side. Because if one was radical and excised nerves on both sides, the outcomes of the surgery would be worse than the disease because the patient would not be able to avoid urine at all, need to self-catheterize for the rest of their lives. So I can really see the importance here of taking a detailed patient history before you go into surgery, right? Because you're mentioning about if a patient has symptoms on a certain side versus another side. So it sounds like you take a very detailed patient history prior to excision. Absolutely. That's very important. So the anamnesis and sitting down face-to-face is very important to understand where the pain comes from. So neuropelviology also taught us think in a neuropelviological fashion. So if there's pain in a particular region, what are the nerves that can be causing the pain? Is it visceral pain? That means is it coming from an organ or is it neuropathic pain or is it coming from a nerve or disease near or around a nerve? So you start thinking in that sense and then you come up with a differential diagnosis. So if I have pain radiating down the sciatic area, which is from the lower back down the buttock to the hamstring, I'm going to start thinking, okay, I've got a lesion either on the sciatic nerve itself or near the sciatic nerve or along the sciatic nerve roots, so S234, which are the sacral nerve roots that are the root values that will radiate pain to the sciatic nerve. Usually, if the lesion is higher up on the spinal cord, it will be bilateral. So it's wise to do a lumbosacral screening of the spine as part of the routine workup in these patients. And then also to be able to identify disease in the areas where those nerve roots would run. In this particular situation, MRI is much better than ultrasound because ultrasound cannot really see the nerve roots or the structures where the nerves would pass. In terms of uh, coming back to the workup of the patient, a detailed history is very important. And then most patients who come to me have already had one or two or 11 surgeries before. So it's very important for me to get as much information as I can from whatever surgical records are available, even if it's a poorly written operative note, or if they're fortunate enough to have been handed over the video of their surgery, I can go through that and kind of make a visual idea of what was done. Then the next part is to do the examination. So this is also part of a neuropelviological examination to do a neurological examination of the pelvic nerves and the lower limbs and the pelvis. Then I do a physical examination if possible. Also, then at that point, I will follow up the examination with my ultrasound. I turn the screen and I explain it to the patient and to their partner. 
what we're looking at and kind of drawing it out for them as we're moving along. Also, we use tenderness guided ultrasound. So it's not just about visualizing the uterus and the ovary and commenting on that. We look at the bladder, the anterior compartment, the ureters, the kidneys. Um, we look at the middle compartment, which is the uterus and the ovaries. One is also to look for adenomyosis and to look at whether the ovaries are stuck to the uterus or not. So to look at the fixability of the ovaries. Then also we look at the posterior compartment, which is the rectum and kind of the parametrium. And if the ovaries are stuck down there, we have an idea of what to expect that there will be uterosacral disease. And usually if there is a nodule picked up, I will gently probe against that nodule and try to elicit pain. So patient symptoms are very important. So if they complain of pain with intercourse, so vaginal intercourse, and you have a bowel nodule, your bowel nodule is very likely to be stuck up against the back of the vagina. So deep penetration of any kind can cause pain because of the infiltration of the bowel nodule up against the back of the vagina. So it's very important as the endometriosis specialist to correlate your history and the patient's symptoms, not only with what you find on your physical examination, but also with what you see on imaging. So the whole picture has to kind of interconnect and make sense and give you a working diagnosis. And most of the time, you should be very well prepared with what kind of surgery you're going to do. Of course, you're not going to see peritoneal disease on any kind of imaging. I'm talking about superficial peritoneal disease. And you will find it at surgery. But the major disease that is the deep endometriosis, in my opinion, should be completely diagnosed before starting surgery. And peritoneal disease is easy enough to excise with a trained eye. And there's no reason not to be able to excise it from any area. So you mentioned that you have patients coming to you that have had prior surgeries, which, you know, could have been excision, but likely have been ablation. Just curious, when a person has had an ablation surgery or multiple ablations, when you do the surgery, when you're looking inside of them, can you tell that the person has had an ablation prior? Like, are there recognizable signs or does it look different inside versus a patient who hasn't had an, an ablation? Generally, of course, because obviously each person is an individual case. That's interesting. So most patients who've had surgery before, either an excision or an ablation. So let's talk about ablation first. So you will still see the lesions in place and there's an area of fibrosis and scar tissue around the lesions. With previous excision, if it's an incomplete excision, the nodule will be deep and the fibrosis will be in the areas of normal tissue. So this is a real nightmare for people who are doing the surgery after these previous surgeons. Because now when you have to dissect through normal tissue, what you can usually achieve the dissection just by putting two instruments into a space and separating them, now you have to cut through that tissue. And if you cut through tissue without using energy, that tissue is going to bleed. So especially if you're, if you're doing a urethrolysis to what should normally have been a very easy to mobilize ureter, you're going to have to cut through this tissue and make sure you don't injure the ureter in the process either by cutting it or by burning it. So that makes surgery much more difficult. Even ablation, especially if it's peritoneal disease, 
creates fibrosis, which is again going to pull structures like nerves and the ureter towards it. So these really complicate the subsequent surgeries that have to come about. If, if the patient has had a laparotomy before, that also leaves a lot of abdominal wall adhesions and so on and so forth. That makes life a little more difficult at the initial part of the surgery. Now, usually what happens is that if a patient has had an ablation before, it means that my deep endometriosis surgery is a lot easier because they've barely scratched the surface. The problem comes in when they've had an excision before. So the person who's done it has some kind of experience, but not being able to tackle really bad disease. Those are the worst cases where you have to go really deep until you start hitting normal planes, or you really have to dissect through abnormal, really fibrotic scar tissue. And that makes what should have been a already mission difficult surgery, almost mission impossible. So I think that's what we expect to find from previous surgeries. Ablation, like you were asking, does have a very telltale island of white fibrosis and scar tissue around the lesions. Talking about adhesions, so so the thing is, I think when it comes to surgery for endometriosis, unfortunately, we see a lot of times that excision and ablation are lumped together, right? So many studies don't distinguish, was it excision, was it ablation? So many times it was ablation. And then we see oftentimes like doctors talking about surgery and just using like endometriosis surgery instead of distinguishing excision or ablation, which are very different surgeries with different techniques, with different outcomes. And from there, we hear a lot of these general statements like, oh, surgery should be the last resort. We shouldn't be operating because surgery causes adhesions and we don't want to cause more adhesions. So just wondering, what do you do to prevent adhesions in the operating room? And do you think that ablation versus excision cause a different amount of adhesions? Generally, of course, as every patient is different. And I do want to also say that we know endometriosis in itself is the cause of a lot of adhesions in some patients, which is why, you know, we can have a frozen pelvis or we can have our bowel stuck to our pelvic sidewall or our ovaries stuck to our uterus. Those fusings together are oftentimes caused by adhesions. So it's kind of funny when they're like, oh, we don't want to operate because of all the adhesions. And it's like all the adhesions in my body are what's like causing me so much pain right now. <laughs> So if you could tell us a little bit about the adhesions with endometriosis. Thank you for that. A, a lot of patients ask me about adhesions. And coming to the first part of your question about excision and ablation. So I think a lot of doctors, what I've noticed recently, are using the term excision as, as like a hashtag or like a, it's the word du jour. They may not be doing excision surgery or they're removing some disease or peritoneum or doing complete peritoneal excision, but not removing deep endometriosis. The problem comes in where excision is becoming kind of being bandied about as, as a cool word. And rather than upgrading skills, they just upgrade their vocabulary. And you know how it is with social media nowadays that anyone with an Instagram account can become an excision surgeon, but eventually it's, and if you read up enough about what to put out there, you can always claim to do excision surgery. But for me, it's more about 
being able to make the diagnosis and remove the disease completely, obviously via excision now, because you cannot, like I said, you cannot ablate that kind of disease. I don't know whether excision or ablation cause more adhesions, but what we need to understand about adhesions and what I try to tell patients as well is adhesions caused by disease are one thing because that's two surfaces with diseases on them that are stuck to each other. When you have the pouch of Douglas obliterated because the rectum is covering the posterior wall of the uterus, it's that there's because there's an adenomyosis in the back of the uterus and there is a disease in the rectum, which is stuck to that adenomyosis. So it's not feasible to say that I'm not going to operate on that because it's going to cause adhesions. Surgical adhesions versus pathological adhesions are two different entities. Surgical adhesions are just two areas. If there are two raw areas, they just get stuck to each other. And they're usually filmy adhesions that can be separated fairly easily, or in some cases do require a little bit of dissection. But they don't usually cause pain in most cases, unless there's an intertwining of the bowel or torsion of the ovary because of the adhesion. Now, to say that one would not perform surgery with the fear of causing adhesions is a cop-out because you're denying a patient treatment. They, yes, adhesions are a risk from surgery, but you're knowingly leaving disease behind and allowing that patient to suffer from pain and or from fertility issues. So one is to, you're keeping them in pain. And from a fertility point of view, you are deeming that patient as infertile and subjecting them to unnecessary or unsuccessful rounds of IVF treatments, which there's enough evidence to show that removing disease, even colorectal disease, not only dramatically improves natural pregnancy rates to the tune of 80% in the first year, but also dramatically improve IVF outcomes. And there are randomized controlled trials for, to show this, which are the highest level of evidence. So to avoid surgery in the terms that it is too risky or too dangerous or too on and so forth, it's dangerous in untrained hands. It's risky in untrained hands. Yes, it is a difficult surgery. That is why centers of excellence and specialist surgeons exist. As an oncologist, it is much more difficult than oncology surgery. Yet most gynecologists will refer all their oncology cases, yet they will try to do whatever bare minimum they can for endometriosis patients. So there's a true injustice in how this disease is perceived and treated in the gynecological community. And because I was straying too much, let me come back to the question about adhesions. We've tried everything to prevent adhesions. Different kinds of adhesion barriers are available from industry. At the end of the day, what we found is that what prevents adhesions the most is clean surgery minimizing blood loss, so being very meticulous with how much bleeding is allowed, and tissue respect. So as long as one dissects anatomically and just doesn't dissect in the wrong planes, then healing occurs mostly without adhesions. Of course, adhesions also depend on patient tendency. So somebody can have the most brutal incision on their skin and they can heal without a scar almost like Wolverine, but some other patients, even if they have the most perfect suturing done on that scar, can have a hypertrophy of that scar or can form keloid on it. Similarly, internally, 
some patients may be more prone to adhesions than others. So what we can do as surgeons is to just be clean with the surgery and also make it very clear to patients that yes, surgery can cause adhesions, but surgical adhesions are not necessarily as notorious as adhesions caused by disease. You know, everything that we've talked about so far, it really shows why endometriosis is known as the most difficult gynecological surgery. I mean, so far we've talked about everything from being able to recognize endometriosis, so recognize it in all of its forms and colors, its subtle appearances, to being able to remove endometriosis, remove it from the bowel safely, remove it from the ureters, remove it from the sciatic nerve, and to do it in a way that as we said, kind of nerve sparing doesn't really have a term, but to have that knowledge to know about the nerves, as you were talking about, to have the knowledge to be able to operate cleanly, as you were saying, to to be able to operate controlling the bleeders, trying to have those clean, you know, surface areas to avoid adhesions. Like there's so much expertise and a skill that comes into doing excision surgery. And I think as patients, like we know that we've been learning about that. We've been learning about the difference between ablation and excision, many of us patients, but to just hear you talking about excision surgery, it's just really obvious what a difficult surgery this is. Yeah, it just infuriates me that, (laughs) just infuriates me that, you know, in many, in the realm, the general realm of the medical community and gynecology excision doesn't get the respect that it deserves. We're not training surgeons in excision, even, you know, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the ACOV guidelines, but even in, I think it's their committee opinion on adolescence and endometriosis. They basically say that, you know, whether you excise or ablate, both are viable options according to the guidelines. And it's like, no, they're not. Like, they're not the same, and they should not be strung together so casually in the same sentence. I wanted to ask you, do you have endometriosis guidelines in India, or, like, what are, here in the United States, we have the ACOG guidelines, their practice bulletin, that's the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. You know, in Australia, they have their own guidelines. There's European guidelines, the NICE guidelines. I know um, there's German guidelines, which I think is like German, Switzerland, and another country. So what about in India? Yeah, so I'm familiar with ACOG guidelines, and we also follow ESHRAE. That's the European Society of Human Reproductive uh, Chronology. And India, the FOGSI, which is the Federation of Obstetrics and Gynecology Society of India, and the IAGE, the Gynae Endoscopy part. So the version of the AAGL. We also have the reproductive societies coming out with guidelines. Sure, they're pretty much the same. I think all of them sing the same tune. But what we need to understand, and I tweeted about this the other day, is that those who can't do teach doesn't really apply to medicine, especially endometriosis. What it really is, is that those who can't do run and take up political positions in these societies. Now, they have no idea what to do. My father calls them outstanding surgeons because they stand outside the OR and never set foot inside it. And the problem with it, when you have people like this making policy, 
they have no idea what they're talking about. They're just going to research. And most of the time I've been to these meetings, it's the pharma companies that send in the research paper. So they've cherry picked the research and these help form the guidelines. And I was almost laughed out of the room when I was, I said, why are we talking so much about fertility? Why aren't we talking about pain? Why are we using excision and ablation in the same category of recurrences when they're clearly different? Why aren't we talking about specialists as a subspecialty? Why aren't we talking about disease in terms of specific to organs and specific to levels of endometriosis? So sure, don't take away early endometriosis from routine gynecological practice, but at least advanced disease, give it its due respect and refer them to specialist centers. But they don't mention these guidelines yet, at least in Indian, in Indian societies. I think that some of these are coming about slowly as more surgeons are getting involved or endometriosis surgeons are getting involved now with these societies and their committees coming out because they, I think as a bunch, we've all realized that we need to be one of the voices framing these guidelines because collectively the experience should make a difference to what is going to be policy for endometriosis in the coming years which is why data tracking is very important. I'm also very guilty of dragging my feet on it and publishing because we don't get, if you're in private practice, you don't get the support you would at a university setting where you have residents and statisticians. And so everything, the onus falls on the practitioner. And if you have to pay for anything, it's out of pocket. So it's not, you don't get a research grant to perform any of the publications. So it has to be only out of your own interest to do that. So I think guidelines are exactly what they should be. They're guidelines, they're good to bandy about in meetings and lectures. And yes, but at the end of the day, I would rather take a consensus of a group of experts over what guidelines are churned out by any country's society. Thank you for your opinion on that. And I definitely agree. And I think a lot of experts and, you know, and advocates agree on that. When you were talking about that, I was just thinking about just how much, kind of how, well, how screwed up care is, you know, in general with endometriosis, but also how it's really hard with excision surgery because, you know, we have this gold standard, but as you were saying, I mean, you're operating all day, like you're, you're busy and you're doing a lot and you're honing your skills and you're doing really complex cases and you're treating patients in a holistic, multidisciplinary manner. And then on top of that to, you know, publish. And then on top of that to attend these meetings about the guidelines. And it's just, it's impossible. You know, you don't have that energy. You don't have, I mean, no person has all of those hours in the day. And I think for excision, I think it is becoming more, more known within the, you know, general medical community, but something that we're really lacking is good data on excision, but how can good data come when surgeons are are so busy? And I think that's something that oftentimes these policymakers don't realize is that there were missing contributions in terms of research that that is there, but we just like you're doing your own data tracking and like you're having great outcomes, but it's just not getting translated to like hard data that they can then use in their meetings when they're looking at 
the data. But as you mentioned, I mean, data is being cherry picked and then data is being used that that's talking about excision and ablation as if it's the same thing, or maybe it is talking about excision, but, you know, we don't know the skill of the surgeon in, in some of these studies. Whenever I see studies on ablation or sorry, on excision, but I always think, well, who, who was the surgeon and what were the surgeon's skills? Because the surgeon's skills are really one of the most important aspects of the outcome of the surgery. So yeah, these are very, very complicated topics when it comes to endometriosis, but hopefully in time, we'll continue moving in the right direction. Some doctors tell their patients that they left behind the endometriosis that was inactive. What does this mean? Is that a thing? <laughs> I don't know what inactive endometriosis is. I suppose what they're referring to is inflammatory versus non-inflammatory disease. So it's more, I guess, inflammatory would be disease that just kind of bleeds on touch. But I don't think one should differentiate between inflammatory or non-inflammatory or if active or inactive is actually a thing. I don't know about that, but I think if you can see it, you should remove it. The rare circumstances where I won't or I will leave disease behind is if I find something on the diaphragm and the patient has no symptoms, and if it's a huge lesion that is going to require a reconstruction of the diaphragm and they have no diaphragm endometriosis symptoms, I'll document it and tell them that this is picked up. You know, if it becomes symptomatic, we'll do it as a, as a second stage surgery, preferably robotically. And then if I find something, so I, I had a case recently where I diagnosed a huge infiltration of the rectosigmoid and we performed a resection anastomosis and I don't do colostomies. So this patient, we don't do them routinely at all. And we found a nodule that was not seen on imaging on the small intestine, which was just at the junction where it entered the large intestine, which is called the IC junction between the ileum and the cecum. Now to remove this would involve performing a hemicolectomy, which is removing the ascending colon, the part of the large intestine, and part of the transverse colon. So that would have been a huge length of resection. And it would have also involved putting in a ileostomy or a colostomy for this patient. So we removed the major rectal disease and the parametrial disease and whatnot and finished that. And I documented it and I, I told this patient that I had to leave this behind because one, you've not consented to a hemicolectomy, much more different from a bowel resection. And two is if you continue to remain asymptomatic, we'll monitor it every year. If you remain asymptomatic, it probably doesn't need anything. If it does become symptomatic, you must be prepared that we will have to go in and do this very large procedure. These are rare circumstances that come in once in a while where, in my opinion, it is viable to leave disease behind. One should understand that this is, at the end of the day, this is benign disease and our patients need functional outcomes, not just removing disease. We're not treating it like cancer. Many people have said it's like cancer surgery. Yes, technically it's more difficult to achieve than cancer surgery. But 
you have to leave the patient functional. Those patients are not going to be happy with the outcomes of surgery if they're unable to avoid urine or if they have to live with a, a bag for a very long time. So I think in those circumstances, it may be feasible. Again, this is only my opinion to leave disease behind in very specific cases. Other than that, if uh, it's diagnosed and extremely symptomatic, it needs to be removed. There's no excuse for leaving that disease behind. Yeah, I think that example that you gave on the small intestines in this very specific patient is a great example of a thought process that went behind, you know, the decision made to, okay, leave that one very specific area of disease behind while getting all of the rest, excising all of the rest, and then the plan to monitor the patient to, you know, let the patient know this would be the course of action if we do want to go ahead and remove it. I think that was a great example. As you said, that's a rare case, right? It's a rare case to be leaving disease behind in a situation like that. In the majority, the high, high majority of cases, you know, it's full excision of all the lesions and all the locations. And this is in contrast to what we're often hearing patients say, which is that, oh, they went in, but they couldn't remove my endometriosis because it was too risky, quote unquote, too risky, um, maybe too risky for that surgeon, but that doesn't mean it's too risky to actually remove. Or other things they say like, oh, we left behind the endo that was inactive or the endo that was inconsequential, which as far as I know is, as you said, is nothing, right? It's not, it's not a thing. It's just kind of like an excuse because how can they know what endometriosis is active or not active? I mean, so I think as patients, we're trying to do the best that we can with our treatment and with the decisions that we make, but some of the roadblocks that we're facing are these excuses or these beliefs that doctors have about operating or leaving disease behind. Oh, let's not operate because it could cause all the adhesions. And it's just, it's difficult as a patient to be navigating these waters because there are so many, so many areas of misinformation and, and many collective beliefs that surgeons have. I mean, it's quite common to hear it was too risky. It's quite common to hear I'll be left behind your inactive endo or, you know, we got what we could, but the rest you'll just have to live with. It's inoperable. And it's just, it's hard as a patient to know what's truth and what's not truth, especially when it's coming from surgeons. So it is really great to hear your opinions and your expertise and your skills on all of these and to hear how you recognize endometriosis, how you plan your cases, and how you excise with complete excision from all locations in the body. There is another question I want to ask. You mentioned the colostomy, and I know that there are many patients who have concerns that if they have bowel endometriosis, that they'll have to have a colostomy bag. I know, as we just said, you know, many doctors say either, oh, bowel endo is too risky to operate on, or there's other doctors who go in there and they treat it as if it was cancer and, you know, they're removing like very large, um, like feet and feet of intestines. So I know you did talk about bowel endometriosis already. You talked about like shaving versus discoid versus the segmental resection. But could you just talk about for a minute the need for a colostomy bag? And I know that there are certain surgeons that have a very high rate of colostomy bag when they're doing the surgery. 
but you said that, you know, typically in your practice, you don't need to do the colostomy bag. So can bowel endometriosis generally be safely removed without using a colostomy bag? Does this come back to the skill of the surgeon or the preference? What What do you think? So a lot of patients are told by their practitioners that, oh, bowel surgery is too risky. Are you willing to live with a colostomy bag for the rest of your life? In fact, my mother had a hysterectomy for adenomyosis and they suspected bowel adhesions. So my father is a surgeon and he had his friend who is an endometriosis specialist or an endometriosis, so-called endometriosis specialist in Germany, come in for the surgery. And he asked her, are you willing to live with a colostomy bag for the rest of your life? So that inherently is a wrong premise to make to patients. What we found that is when you looked at the literature in those centers, if you can call them centers, or those surgeons working or just handing over to colorectal surgeons, the colostomy rates went up because what we need to understand is colorectal surgeons don't know how to treat endometriosis. They are trained to do colorectal cancer. So if you apply the same principles of surgery to endometriosis, you're going to have much higher stoma rates. So again, colorectal cancer, much different from endometriosis. In that, they cut the blood vessels supplying the bowel, they remove the fat, they remove the lymphatic organs, there's nerve damage that occurs. Of course, they've evolved now to be nerve sparing for that kind of resection. But traditionally, it's a much different approach. And as we developed the center, and I trained in Europe with Professor Roman, who I think does the most bowel endo in the world. And we started developing techniques to keep the mesorectal fat intact, keep your blood supply of the anastomosis intact. So you're automatically completely nerve sparing. And now even furthermore, we've evolved to avoiding the mini laprotomy in most cases to exteriorize the bowel, to excise the nodule. It's all done completely through natural orifices now. So either through a small opening in the vagina or through the rectum itself. So this really reduces the morbidity of the procedure. And we are able to achieve very healthy vascular anastomosis, which has dropped our leak rates even further. So no prophylactic stomas. Prophylactic is a preventive colostomy. You know, what they do for cancers, they put it so that the anastomosis can heal without being under tension. Those are, of course, good protocols for when you do a very large anastomosis. But for bowel endometriosis, most of your resections are going to be a very small length of bowel, which is just above and below the nodule. So we are most of the time completely able to achieve tension-free anastomosis when we join the bowel back together. So there is almost no need for stomas in those cases or preventive stomas. There are rare circumstances when you do an ultra-low resection, which is how close your lower limit is to the anal verge. Those cases may benefit from a temporary ileostomy, which is maintained for four to six weeks and then reposited back. So it's never a permanent stoma like they do for cancers. And this is very restricted to the extreme cases where you have such a low resection. 
most endometriosis nodules, what I've seen in my practice, affect the mid-rectum and above. So that's usually a good eight, nine centimeters away from the anal verge. So we don't really need to worry about tension-free anastomosis in those cases. And of course, what the other kind of stomas are when you have a leakage of the anastomosis, if a staple line gets infected and stools start leaking out from there, then we have to diagnose that quickly and go and repair that and then do a stoma at that point. Again, it's maintained only for four to six weeks in most cases till the primary anastomosis is allowed to heal and then it's reversed and, and the patient usually regains complete function of the bowel. Again, most of these anastomoses are high away from the anal verge, so there's no damage to the function of the rectum and they are able to pass stools quite painlessly and uh, post-operative outcomes are, are really good in those cases. So modifying these techniques over the last year, our colostomy, our stoma rate dropped to 1%. It was 1.7% before. So just to give you an idea of numbers, for endometriosis, an acceptable rate among endometriosis centers is about 2 to 4%. For colorectal cancers, the leak rate is about 5 to 8%. So I think by modifying these techniques with the team in place, and I, I do need to give a shout out to my colorectal, who is fantastic. And I send him videos all the time of what we did in, in France. And he's like, okay, we can try this. This is really good. And we've used those and modified and created our own techniques, which I think has really made a difference in the outcomes. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's really important that the patient keep in mind that if the surgeon is saying, well, you most likely need a colostomy bag, they may want to look for a second opinion for a surgeon who has more skill, who's able to do the operation without such a high rate of colostomy, especially, um, as you said, your own rate is like around 1% of patients. Can you just tell me for a second about the difference between recurrence and persistence? So a lot of patients, they will say that they're fearful of another surgery because they feel that the endo keeps coming back. I told them, imagine that you've had appendicitis and somebody is going in repetitively and just doing a cystectomy of the ovary. You're still going to have appendicitis. It doesn't matter if they do one or a hundred cystectomies. So similarly with the bowel, the appendix is part of the, the gastrointestinal system. If they keep only treating the ovarian cyst, which is the easiest to identify, and they completely miss bowel disease, it doesn't really make a difference. It's not recurrence of disease. It's just disease that was never identified. So I want to really thank you today for coming on the podcast and doing this interview, for sharing all of your knowledge and your expertise. I really appreciate, I, I mean, I feel like honestly I could talk to you for hours and just pick your brain about all the surgical expertise and skills needed for excision. I think as patients, we have a lot of curiosity because we've learned that we've had to become our own advocates, which is very unfortunate. And I think we have a lot of curiosity to what's going on during the surgeries, like, you know, how is endo removed? How do we know how deep? Because then we can ask our surgeons 
when we're vetting our surgeon, we find a surgeon, we want to ask the surgeons all these questions, like what are your recurrence rates? And what does endometriosis look like? Because we know if the surgeon says, oh, it's black, it's a powder burn. And that's it. It's like, okay, I'm not operating with you because you're going to miss like the majority of my endo because you're, you don't even know what to look for. So just really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Now, you're in India. Would you tell us the name of your endometriosis center? And I know that you take patients from around the world. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. First of all, thank you for having me do this. It was very easy to talk. And I think you asked some really important, poignant questions about endometriosis that are frequently asked. And of course, thank you for the work that you do. And I do have the Indian Center for Endometriosis, which is the multidisciplinary team. That's one aspect of it. It's also a platform for patient and provider awareness. So I try to put out as much accurate information about endometriosis as I can, and probably for other practitioners, if I find an interesting case or try to help them something with diagnostics or the appearance or pattern of a disease, I try to put that out there. So that's basically the other part of Endometriosis India or the Indian Center for Endometriosis. I have ownership of the center, which is I've still not handed over to any of the hospitals yet because I think they will mismanage it right now. So I'm going to keep that under my, but I do have privileges at hospitals in, in Mumbai right now. We are looking to expand to other cities, but I'm looking at the feasibility and logistics of it. I'm also involved in training other doctors in these kind of procedures. I'm trying to do workshops four times a year in India, and we also take a lot of doctors from India to my professor in Bordeaux to run a workshop there every three or four times a year. So I'm easily available on all kinds of social media. I have patients reach out to me on virtually every platform and I'm quick to respond. So I do respond to my own emails, Twitter, Instagram. I don't have a marketing team to handle all that for me because honestly, they don't know what to put out and it's very generic. It looks pretty, but there's very generic information. So I was never happy with that. And I feel like it should be more from from me and more personal. I do see patients. I do teleconsults with an MR sent to me before to help them make the diagnosis and guide them along their decision-making process. I have a team to also help with, you know, sorting out logistics of traveling for surgery. So from everything from airport transfers to different types of hotel stays for them and their family. And also the hospitals help in arranging medical visas to come to India. For patients who are not of Indian origin, they do require a medical visa to travel for surgery. That's great. That's great to hear. And that's really wonderful to hear of the support team in place because I can, as we know, there is a shortage of surgeons worldwide for excision. And unfortunately, for many people, it does require traveling outside of their city, perhaps outside of their state and even outside of their country. So it's great to know that, you know, your center is an option, a very excellent center, a very good option, and that that support is in place to help patients who, you know, want to operate with you and to navigate 
just all of the aspects of like travel and things like that. So I'm really pleased to hear that, that you have all of that support for the patient. You're a great source of information. So we'll go ahead and put all of those links in the show notes today so that patients can follow you on the different social media and they can reach out to you and learn from you. I think you have a lot of great videos online, great presentations, and I'll go ahead and link some of those, some of those as well in the show notes. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And just want to say thank you for all of your hard work and, you know, for caring about us patients and this endometriosis community. It really means a lot to us. Oh, thank you. That's no thanks needed, but thank you all the same. And thank you for the work that you do. I think I enjoy what I do. And so even interacting with like-minded individuals is a great joy and it doesn't feel like work. So you never work a day in your life then.